Hi, and welcome to my podcast series, The New Abnormal, which aims to make sense of our COVID-19 world today and tomorrow. I'm Sean P. Lodishenesi, researcher, author, and speaker from Brand Positive. As a researcher, I've spent 20 years conducting ethnographic interviews on global projects. Along the way, I've been lucky enough to have met some amazing people, from psychologists to activists to creatives, some of whom I'll be talking to in this series. I'm also the author of The Post-Truth Business, which focused on trust, empathy and privacy, while my second book, Influences and Revolutionaries, looked into innovation, behavioural change and the climate crisis. So, I hope you enjoy the interviews, and if so, please tell your friends, leave a rating and watch out for our other episodes. Now, without further delay, let's crack on with today's podcast. So today I'm really pleased to be joined by an incredibly interesting individual, Sophie Roberts, who's an author and journalist focusing on travel stories in remote parts of the world with a special interest in literature, history, culture and conservation. She shoots articles as well as writes them, including cover features for the Financial Times, the Condé Nast Traveller and ex-travel editor for The Economist. Her first non-fiction book, The Lost Pianos of Siberia, was published by Doubleday in 2020. It's a Times Sunday Times and Independent Book of the Year, being named Best Travel Book of 2020 by Smithsonian Magazine, The Spectator, an iPaper, and was recently shortlisted for the Stanford Dolman Travel Book of 2021. The book is currently being translated into seven languages. Sophie contributes to radio, podcast and panel events, including the BBC, The Economist, Times Radio, Tortoise, and the Royal Geographical Society. She holds a first-class degree from the University of Oxford and an MS from Columbia University Journalism. She also holds a postgraduate diploma in photojournalism for the London College of Printing and an MST in creative writing from the University of Oxford. As they say, beat that. So, uh, Sophie, hi, and uh, how are you? Uh, hi, it's nice to speak with you, Sean. Fantastic. So, Sophie, I've got your extraordinary book uh, in front of me. I've been reading it with such pleasure. Just before we get cracking into it, just read a couple of the comments about it. So Paul Theroux describes it as an elegant and nuanced journey through literature, through history, through music, murder, incarceration and revolution, through snow and ice and remoteness to discover the human face of Siberia. I love this book. Leveson Wood says, it's a masterpiece of modern travel literature with words that sing from its pages, a definitive exploration from Russia's wild east. Wow. What can one say? Apart from, I've read a couple of fantastic interviews with you. And uh, as I understand, it already started off um, on your childhood holidays in Ireland. So uh, go on then, Sophie. Well, I, was, I wasn't brought up with holidays. Um, my parents were farmers and uh, the most far-flung we got to from a childhood in Scotland was Ireland, where my mother um, always had a brilliant line whenever my sisters and I complained that it was, you know, another holiday in the cold and swimming in a freezing sea. And her line was always, oh, um, 
stop complaining it's warm rain and warm <laughs> rain is is the only uh real memory of childhood holidays i've i i i have um but equally uh the older you get you start to look back at uh, once you know your childhood and see other things and i suppose um i was given a taste for wilderness actually i was given a taste for the big outdoors and um i've ever since a childhood in Scotland, I've been drawn to those landscapes. And um, of course, Siberia is probably the most fenceless of them all. It covers an 11th of the land's, world's land surface. It's just vast and on a scale that I'd never encountered even in all my years working in Africa um, as a journalist. And it, mm. it filled me with excitement, this kind of you know, when when a space is when a space is that fenceless, um, mm. you believe that something can happen. It's you're less l- literally blocked and locked in. It's the opposite of the experience we're having with COVID nineteen. Mm. I do remember one time just years ago flying back from Tokyo um, over Siberia, and for some reason we actually sort of flew, you know, vaguely low uh, on a utterly clear day and i remember just just being stunned by you know i'd be there looking out of the window of the sort of virgin flight and um reading a magazine and then look out the window again it was just endless snow and small rivers from that high up and then you know read the magazine again about an hour later look out the window same scene read the magazine again an hour later same scene yeah just the staggering size yeah, and you probably weren't flying low. You were probably at 36,000 <laughs> yeah. feet, but it's the scale mm. is such that you, I mean, it is, and that image, I'm glad you, you, you pull that out, um, from your own memory because it was something I write about in the book. I, I mm. too have looked down, um, on that landscape from a plane. And I've also been watching the dot on the seat fr- in front, which has these kind mm. of incredibly alluring names of places that I've never heard of. And the combination of that, that, that huge tiger forest, that huge tundra, those kind of rivers snaking through the landscape, like kind of little silver S-bends. It's just, it was just so evocative and then coupled with these names of places I'd never heard of in a world that I felt had been, you know, I'd come too late to, that everything's been discovered, everything's been touched, everything's been overturned and explored and all the rest of it. I felt that Siberia mm. had a kind of possibility built into its 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 landscape um, and I just need to get my feet on the ground to, to, to sort of unweave some of those stories. Mm. So one of the things that I don't know if people have, I certainly didn't know about Siberia when I first started to explore the place is that um, Siberian, when you were shipped into Siberia as an exile under, in the Tsarist period, um, you were, you were, you were shipped in in chains. You were a criminal, even if you'd done nothing wrong, you were Hmm. branded a criminal. But by the time you got into Siberian territory, something changed including the language, you were called an unfortunate. So empathy was built into the Siberian psyche from the start. And not just that, you weren't just now an unfortunate because of your circumstances, but you were also, you would find free bread and milk left on the windowsills of the villages that you passed through on the way to your Siberian prison, which other Siberians left out for these new folk coming through the doors. And that, to me, is an image that speaks so strongly of the spirit of hospitality that I felt arriving as a foreign English writer in a 
Putin's Russia knocking mm. on the doors of remote homes saying, have you got a piano? And that one, a piano and music is a very neutral zone um, mm. where you can, you can overcome difference for the shared interest in music. But also it was like, uh, it was literally a passport into this uh, deep, deep uh, set spirit of hospitality and community and kindness that I felt um, really belongs to Siberia, yet it's a place that from the outside we all fear. And that to me was my, my that was my epiphany and, and, and something I will always hold dear. Wow. What an extraordinary sort of mental picture that gives one. Mm, it's a special place. I mean, it's not all special. It's also grim in many, many uh, parts of its history and in many, many parts of its landscape that's been desecrated by, by development and obviously the Siberian forest fires, etc. But there is always two sides to a story. And those are the kind of, um, that, that light and darkness is the, is the, uh, that's, that is the space I'm most interested in as a writer. Uh, I was reading an article with you, or sorry, an interview with you um, in Forbes magazine. And just going back to before you began to write the book, I thought it was really fascinating, um, just one of the many comments you made in there about your time working, for instance, with Condé Nast Traveller. Uh, and you said that, uh, and I quote, you know, bit by bit, I started to feel empty. I travelled, but my assignments weren't about people or issues. They're about powder white sand, butler services and tumbling bougainvillea you know the part of journalism i've been drawn to uh, was becoming increasingly absent so just perhaps just going back a bit just talk about your sort of career at that point the sort of things that you were up to uh, and, and why it was that uh, you know, as you mentioned in that point that uh, you started to feel empty yeah it's a it's a good question because the path i had to writing this book um was uh, 20 years of having also to make a living and i i'd always wanted to be a journalist i'd always wanted to write i've always been an uh, drawn to people. I, I, I'm good at making friends of strangers and I prefer making friends of strangers almost than I do spending time with my own friends. It's a sort of, it's a sort of mm. my, it's, it's where I'm most comfortable is, is when I'm un, un, unmoored, if you will, from, from mm. the familiar. But what, what had happened is I, you know, I was lucky. I was so lucky. I got given a chance to work on a on a on a travel magazine um, as it was launching in the British market, Condé Nast Traveller. I was so lucky, and I will never, I will never um, say anything otherwise. But mm. over the course of that period of time working for that magazine, um, the assignments became more and more absorbed with the business of tourism um, rather than the um, serendipity of travel and the. Two are very different. The business of tourism mm. is a predetermined assignment. You are going to go to uh, this place where there is X hotel who could be an advertiser um, or might not, but um, essentially it's a fairly stable status quo and it's a fairly um, it's a fairly uh, aspirational universe of, of talking peer to peer, but it's also mm. one that is um, emptied of the kind of reality um, that I need um, to, in order to believe in the stories I write. Uh, so, you know, I've, I found myself in places like 
the Maldives, which are on one level, you look at them and it's paradise. We all want to be there right now, uh, you mm. know, aching to be in a place so beautiful. But they're also, they're, they're rich men's prisons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a bubble. It's a universe that is a bubble if you want to be completely safe and uh, you need to sleep and you need to relax and all of those things. But it's not a place for storytellers. It's not a mm. place for, for journalists. Um, it's a, it's a, it doesn't have that texture that I need and was hungering for by the time I managed to, you know, get a book idea off the ground and find a publisher's advance to pull it out the bag. Um, but it's not to criticize that world of tourism. It's an incredibly important business um, industry, as we're seeing how, how, how decimating this pandemic is being on, you know, what's the tenth of the world's um, jobs are in tourism. But it was just for me as a writer, I found it, I was being, I, I was emptying somehow. Um, I was feeling increasingly shallow. I was worrying, uh, thinking about the wrong things. The value, my value mm. system was changing. Mm. And you mentioned that point about um, when you had, had that sort of that sort of Damascene conversion that uh, you put. You know, I took out a map of all the fashionable places other travel journalists were writing about and added them to my no-go list. It was completely liberating. An entirely new horizon opened up in front of me. Chad. Mongolia, Congo, Papua New Guinea, and Siberia. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, that was also in order to, to survive in a competitive marketplace. You know, so part of it was to do with where my soul and my spirit was drawn. But the other side was, mm. um, make no mistake, it was... Um, it was strategic. I, I went to one of these huge kind of um, sort of travel junkets. I'm sure every industry has them where everyone speed dates in order to understand the other person's business. And you walk out the door and you have um, 50 stories that you could cover for the next year. And I went to the, the last speed dating event I went to like that, which is, you know, global group of people in the room. I literally mm. made... Um, a list and I thought I'd look around me all the other journalists are going to be doing these pieces so that's 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 a no-go now I now know everything that is in this room I cannot cover for the next year mm, mm. I know that certainly um, one of the things you also want to focus on more is wildlife and conservation I remember a while ago talking to uh, uh, some of the activists from Extension Rebellion who who looked at for instance tourism from the perspective of um, just that bizarre sort of a, a ethos of being able to go to whatever you know the arctic or the antarctic in a giant cruise liner and effectively just watch the entire thing melt <laughs> from your sort of glittering sort of yeah. a, a thing i mean just uh, yeah yeah i mean that's that. you know it wasn't so long ago where i was given an assignment in greenland and i wrote to the assigning editor i said great but be under no illusion i will be covering uh the climate problem and i was taken off the assignment so there you go wow wow you know, there's a lot. There are a lot of 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 of, of balances in 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 the business I'm in, um, and you have to be sensitive to them. But ultimately, I believe uh, there has never been a greater need for truth, and mm. that includes in this universe called paradise which is the universe of tourism we need more truth in it and the generation coming up behind i've got children they're like yeah. they know 
that outside of that bubble, there are things going on and decisions they are making which mm. um, have huge impact. You know, do they really need to fly um, in order to have a holiday? All these things are now under question, and we have to question them ourselves, not just pretend it's not happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just from the point of view of focusing on the book, because it's just, I mean, I say it's, I've got a copy of it in front of me, which I've been reading, and it's just mind-bogglingly brilliant, um, just from, from my own perspective and let anyone else's. I thought it was fascinating um, that you talk about, you know, for, for, for travellers, it has vast, vast potential. Uh, as you mentioned in an in interview, say, if you go past its old imperial boundaries, Siberia reaches from the Ural Mountains all the way to the Pacific. Um, everything about it feels surprising. Perhaps you can talk about that. Um, Everything about it feels surprising when one perhaps has one's sort of mental image, just it is um, whatever, yeah. eight trillion miles of snow. I mean, there, of course, Siberia is wrapped with cliche. Um, we know it, we, we use it as the, we use it as a word to describe the place in the restaurant you don't want to get a seat in New York. You know, it's used as mm. the place you don't want to end up. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, um, it's used as a, as a synonym for kind of, you know, white, empty spaces. And all of those have a reason behind the cliche. You know, Siberia, I mean, just look at the numbers, you know, from 1801 to 1917, more than a million subjects were banished there under the Tsars, um, according to their penal exile system. And then in the, under the Gulag, the Soviet Gulag period, you're talking about 2.7 million forced laborers dying in those Soviet Gulags. 1929 to 1953. These are huge numbers. It is an extraordinary amount of suffering that is in that um, part of the world. But there is also always another story, and that was the um, that was the potential that I wanted to eke out in the um, time that I spent there um, over the last three years or so. Um, and the, the the story I tell, which is one, you know, I use music as my lens in order mm. to dig into what what you know the kind of the stories the stories that belong to the people on the ground that haven't necessarily been told before now mm. and it's about the sort of people on the ground um one of the comments i read that uh, you made was uh, you never forget when you were in the altai mountains and you said to your siberian host this home was very remote he corrected you his face showing no hint of a smile saying the world is very remote we are at the center. Yeah, I mean, it was a real ticking Great off. Line. Yeah, it was a real ticking off is the, you know, the arrogance that one brings to um, places as an outsider, um, believing that, you know, its ethnocentricity was to totally turned on its head by that single comment. And it changed my relationship with Siberia thereafter. Why is it the back of beyond in our heads? It's somebody else's um, heart and heartland and homeland. Mm. So as you say, Sophie, you know, Siberia's story is traditionally one of exiles, penal connollies and unmarked graves, yet there's another tale to tell. So go on then, just please talk us through A, what really drew you to Siberia and then how the research and writing process really took off. 
Well, it's interesting because the story didn't even begin in Russia. Um, it began over the border um, in Mongolia, a place that I've been going to for a number of years, um, a place where I have some very good friends. And I was staying with those friends. Um, he's German. His wife is Mongolian. And they and their children spend the summer months on the steppe um, with um, with the extended family. Um, these are herder people. Um, they live in tents, gares, Mongolian gares, felted circular tents and mm-hmm. um on the, the most it, most extraordinary river valley called the Orkon and um one summer in 2015 we were there and there was a young pianist a Mongolian pianist of, of extraordinary talent who was playing on a Yamaha piano that had seen better days you know the climate is tough and she was playing on this piano because she was teaching some of the herder children um through the summer and um was also giving sort of recitals um if you will in the evenings and in one of the one of those first recitals i was listening to her she was playing some bark it was just exquisite you can imagine you know there's mm. there's no electric light for miles and miles and miles you've got this um this round tent with this extraordinarily uh, interesting crew of people you know the shaman the a man we call the bone setter um uh, 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 there was a, another friend of ours called Socht who's a um he trained in Paris as an opera singer he's from um Mongolia too and then there were these you know herder children had never heard this kind of music in that environment and the candlelight and smoke coming up from the fire and up above Whoa. us is the stars and the river it's just incredible listening yeah, to yeah. piano music as it should be heard not recorded live and mm. my german friend who knows a lot about music um was tut tutting and i was going god i've never heard something so beautiful and he was no no no, no. that piano is not good enough you must go find her one of the lost pianos of siberia and he knew who he was saying it to. We're very odd friends. He's he's worked in film in, in his past, and he's a storyteller too. Um, and he fed me um, an idea with that phrase that actually um, maybe there was something in it. And indeed, there is a very powerful historical link between Siberia and the piano, um, which starts in the, um, well, Catherine the Great, and then moves through the early 19th century with the sort of explosion of piano mania um, across Russia. And at the same time as the piano is entering Russian culture, European Russian culture, the Russians are moving over from St. Petersburg and Moscow, um, the centers of, of, of their, their society on the west side of the country and further and further east. So they're kind of colonizing Siberia across these 11 time zones. And um, they took with them governors, misfits, um, exiles, aristocrats, um, pianos. And the image was so absurd to me. I mean, bearing in mind, Mm. this is a time pre-railway, you know, of a piano being dragged on the back of a sledge for for weeks on end um, in temperatures that go to minus 50. Um, To me, the absurdity of that image was, was very, very powerful, but also the beauty of that image because mm. how somebody must love music to to go to to make that the object they they take with them it speaks to the solace that culture um, can provide um, so mm. in in that phrase I felt there was an idea and in um, and as I started to you know there's there's a there was a huge risk involved of kind of arriving in Siberia and discovering there's nothing mm. um, but the opposite 
occurred. Um, there was so much and so much I didn't expect and so much um, in the people that still value and hold on to these instruments, I found these incredible uh, narratives of kind of humanity and love and um, and a shared passion for the power of music. So that's really how the story evolved and then took shape on the road. Oh, it's an extraordinary um, thought. So, yeah, perhaps just talk us through. Yeah, so the, the initial uh, trips, the, the type of people you were meeting, where you were going, and perhaps how that then developed um, over the years. Sure. I mean, I think I forget how many times, was it eight times I went? But it was, I certainly went right up to my limit bar a day on my visa. Um, but it was, it was a mix. You know, how did I, I, I get these stories um, of, of pianos and find, find instruments? Um, I worked with piano tuners, piano tuners of the keys to the kingdom, of course, because they have mm. their little black book of, um, of of instruments they care for. And I remember meeting one gentleman in Kamchatka that had been doing it for 60 years or something, and he had every single instrument with the serial number marked out in a little book that he showed me. Um, wow. And, you know, every piano carries a serial number, so they're all individuals. Um, and you wow. can trace these, the, uh, you know, a piano with good provenance, you can trace right back to the day it was made. Um, the uh, What is interesting, of course, because of Russia's um, uh, history, a very disturbed 20th century history um, with revolution, um, the Soviet period, uh, perestroika, is that that provenance also gets disturbed because people are, um, you know, um, uh, uh, giving away, selling all sorts of things with those instruments, which which don't. So you lose you lose histories and you lose mm. memory, and trying to recapture some of that memory as part of the storytelling. So there was one I'd give you one good example was a uh, uh I ended up in a city called Akadem Gorodok, which is like the Silicon Valley of of um Siberia. Um a, a Soviet um science city. Um it during the mm. Soviet period it was known as the um littlest city with the biggest high uh, highest IQ anywhere. Um and I'd I'd encountered a story about a French woman who had married a Russian and they both ended up in the gulag um in the fifties of late forties. And she spent, I think it was about eight years. And when she came out of that gulag, um, she, her husband had, had perished. Um, she walked out of the labor camp in her prisoner's pea coat. And she'd been a concert pianist um, prior to her incarceration, a very good one. Le Figaro in France said that she was, you know, mm -hmm. a, a pianist of rare brilliance. She walked out. Um, and the first thing she did in her prisoner's pea coat was knocked on the door of a music school and asked if she could play the piano. Uh, they said, of course, a little confused by the request. Um, and they listened to her play the various accounts of, you know, two, four, eight hours solid, note perfect, um, you know, Bach, Liszt, all this music that she'd held onto in her head during her period of internment. But Wow. It wasn't just inside her head. What had happened was her friends had carved a piano, um, a keyboard into the side of her wooden bunk. So she'd been practicing on a silent keyboard. And that, to me, was such a powerful story. And when I didn't think, and I, I, I found her last piano. She, she, she's um, sadly now died. 
I went to her mm. grave, cleared her grave wow. of a meter of snow and found her last piano in this city called Akademgorodok. And as I'm working with local media there who were really helpful to me in Russia, trying to trace these yeah. pianos, there was a gentleman in the back of the room and he was a piano tuner. He was a piano professor and he was one of the last tuners for that instrument. And I got talking to him and I thought that was pretty remarkable. You know, he was bringing back history and telling me history and all the rest of it until I discovered yeah. that he himself was a survivor of the siege of Leningrad. Wow. <laughs> you know, this is a, a siege that 800,000 people died, you know, pe fellow set it was uh, it was so grim <laughs> it yeah, was yeah. so grim and this little child at the time described how um his mother who's working in the hospital you can only imagine and dragging corpses to the oh, to yeah. the to the to the the sort of makeshift cemetery that was just mounting up um his mother used to get gave him records that he could listen to um during these absolutely dreadful days of the siege um uh, when they were eating cat he remembers eating cat to survive but he still says that the thing that um allowed him to hold on to hope and hold on to a future was the sound of music and it was listening to music every day during the siege and so you know it was it was strange how a piano hunt evolves into a really deep dive into a single instrument takes me to the gulag and it takes me yeah. to the siege of leningrad but above all it takes me to the stories of two people who my goodness their stories should be heard and that's what oh, yeah. that's that was the that was what I found every every corner I turned in Siberia. There were just like these tales just waiting to be unravel. Just absolutely staggering. I mean, I mean just I mean, looking at the book now, and to me, I mean, one of the amazing things about it is you can just read, you can open any page at random, and some astonishing story just as you were talking about comes out so looking at one now um uh, a chap, chap that you met called uh, grigory um who uh, who talked about uh, that it was essential to restore Sakhalin's history to show that heroes existed and one of the things he was doing uh, was researching uh, captain robert scott's dog handler dmitry girev who was born um in a unpronounceable town and joined the explorer's attempt in 1911 on the south pole um and he himself was a son of a female uh convict and brilliant with husky teams so just epic these things that leap out of it um yeah and you know that, that guy gregory he was a local historian and he was spending the you know he was spending real time to try and correct this this um this story that Siberia is only a place full of murderers and 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 convicts. Um, mm. You know, many many people were exiled to Siberia um, against their will. They weren't convicts. All they'd done wrong was they they they'd taken snuff in a public place, <laughs> you know, or not wow. even that, you know. So, so he had real, he had real moral courage, Gregory, and also a, a, a kind of storyteller's instinct for digging in. Um, and that one about the the husky handler that went to the Antarctic with Scott is is a is a really heartwarming story, actually. It's a fantastic story, and, and over the page, I mean, hey, I have to say, in terms of a sort of personal thing, um, I still have my excellent um childhood book the uh, ladybird book of captain scott's trip and in there you say that uh, captain oates and cecil mears were in charge of the ponies and dogs mears had traveled all the way across russia and siberia to find the right sort of animals and had brought them back with him and they took with him dimitri 
um, who uh, was one of the heroes of the thing. There's also in there, by the way, in your book, I love that photograph uh, just over the page after the, the, that, the, uh, uh, the, the sort of the intro about Grigory. And there's a photograph of one of Captain Scott's sled dogs listening to a gramophone on the ice in the Antarctic. Um, fantastic. Yeah, that was fun because um, the, the local historian um, and I traded research because there was some material he wanted from Cambridge, from the Polar Institute there. And, you know, I obviously was digging into some of the, the, the um, music and piano stories in this sort of very wild bit of Russia, yeah. Sakhalin Island. So it was like those kind of relationships. You know, I came away with real friendships in Russia mm. um, and that mattered to me. And again, to take this conversation back to an early point about why I was feeling emptied by the travel journalism that had come before is that often a story, you kind of, you're in, you're out, you get what you need and there isn't time to form those relationships. I have made um, some really deep, lifelong friends because I had time and space um, to work in Siberia um, on this story with people who I would, you know, I would defend to the last as they would me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, another one to another sort of random page. And so uh, someone else you met called uh, Stanislav, who remembers cakes made of milled sunflower fashioned into slabs so rough he had to cut them with a chisel or drive in a nail. His mother would queue for 24 hours for an eighth of a loaf. You did anything to survive. One of their friends' families suspended a piece of sugar from the ceiling. She hung it there because the thought of it made everything else taste that little bit sweeter. Mm. Wow. Yeah, Stanislav's the, 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 the guy who survived the sea. Leningrad, kind yeah, of incredible, yeah. just staggering. Um, and then, what about I mean, did things change over the years? I mean, you said he went back and back again and travelled, obviously, at astonishing distances. I mean, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, look, this was a quest narrative, um, and to some readers who are used to a kind of Hollywood three-part structure, you know, um, uh, mm, and a really yeah. clean line through it, um, I don't give the readers that clean line through it because uh, a search is messier than that. Um, I hope I give narrative coherence, but sometimes I would go for a very long time to a very far away place and fail. Um, but that was something something that I was willing and 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 open to accepting very early on in the in the work I was reading um, some of um, a, a description that John Steinbeck gave of a trip to the USSR in the aftermath of the Second World War and he was traveling with the photographer Robert Kappa and mm -hmm. he said we made our plans in this way if we could do it it would be good and a good story and if we couldn't do it we'd have a story the story of not being able to do it. And I thought, oh, there you go. That's all I needed to hear. Failure yeah, yeah. can also um, be a, a powerful thing. <laughs> you know, failure is something that can also carry with it narrative and meaning, mm. um, not just, you know, here's, here's, here's me and my hero narrative. In fact, it was something I kind of wanted mm. to get away from because so much of travel writing has been about, you know, a strong white guy um, in a, a wild yeah. place dominating the landscape and the people and being the kind of, you know, the, the lynch of, of the whole piece of storytelling. And I didn't want to tell that. So, you know, I've had people say, oh, there's not enough of you in the book. And I said, why do you need more of me? I'm trying to tell the story of Siberia and Siberians. Um, I'm merely the conduit um, and the gatherer in order to, um, you know, express some of those experiences they had, not me. 
Mm. And in in terms of um, what is, and, and, and I know you mentioned that the book is now being translated into numerous languages and has been sort of a nominated for, again, numerous awards. Um, what, what, what's happening with regards to it at the moment? I mean, are you, I mean, obviously one can't uh, physically travel for obvious reasons, but um, yeah, let's just talk about uh, the publicity it's received and the uh, and the sort of uh, yeah, yeah activity that you're doing around it. Well, there was um, uh, uh, Siberia, Russia has, apart from China, I think it is, more borders than any other country in the world. And so that's one of the reasons the book has, I think, um, done well with international publishers. Um, mm. Siberia actually has affected a lot of people's histories. Um, yeah. So, you know, Germany, China, uh, France, Spain, even it's, 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 it has got and it's entangled with so many other places, which I try to explain in the book by going down these 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 different narrative narrative lines if you will so that's why i think it has resonated with international publishers um the the other thing that has really been a very exciting part of it also up to a point frustrating because the pandemic getting in the way is i always conceived of it as a collaboration with um a, a photographer and mm-hmm. filmmaker and also the musician who inspired the whole thing at the beginning, Odrel Sampelnorov, who was the pianist playing in that Mongolian gear. And we wanted mm. to do recitals. We wanted to make uh, a, sh- a documentary piece. Um, uh, we wanted to do all of those things where the, the sort of three different art forms of writing, fine art, um, and music could come together. And up to a point, we've managed that. Um, my colleague, Michael Turek, who is an American photographer, mm who joined me for most of the trips I did, has produced a stunning photographic monograph um, published by the Italian um, house Damiani. Um, and he is working on gallery shows now in the States. Um, my friend mm. Ogdorel, we've done some recordings. Um, I managed to ca- make one in that tent before this all kind of kicked off with the pandemic um but we how we wished we were all together right now in order to bring these stories into a room because it is about music and it is about um seeing a place differently and while my book i hope can stand on its own it also is greatly enhanced by um, some of the collaborations I had with these two two people, um, and you can see it on the mm. website. You know, there's a there's a trailer that's they're just developing oh, into it. something. Yeah, yeah that, that that trailer that you say was shot by Michael Tirek looks it's absolutely beautiful. Um, and uh, and if, yeah, regards to your comment about you know it is about music. I think as the uh, review in the Wall Street Journal said, you know these pages sing like a symphony. Uh, absolutely. Wonderful. Completely separate issue. Just could we talk about um, the issue of the reality of publishing and retail at the moment? Because I know that you're very keen that people buy your book, for instance, through the uh, the bookshop in Bridport in Dorset. <laughs> so, you know, as opposed to, uh, should we say, the, the giant squid of um, Amazon. Um, so, um, yeah, just perhaps just a, a, as a slight aside, just talk about perhaps the, the reality of 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really tough. I was so lucky in so many ways because I came and my book was published in the UK um, just um, pre-lockdown. So I had Mm. about two weeks. Um, The last people I've seen actually since this whole thing started was at my book launch in London at John Sanders, a brilliant independent bookseller there. Um, And then it all came crumbling down. We all got locked in and um, literary Mm. festivals were cancelled. You know, literary festivals are the bread and butter for writers. Um, So we've all had to pivot. Um, really quickly um and you know it it's it's meant um turning outwards in a different way um doing a, a like everybody's lives trying to find nimble alternatives and in a way the collaboration with a musician and a fine artist has helped because i'm, I'm not just talking through a zoom um i have sound and visuals to bring things to life a little more when we lose human contact um which is you know the agonies of this period of time but Mm. the um in terms of um booksellers um look uh every book that is sold um thank you um but do I have I always been somebody that believes in the the little guy um yes (laughs) do I believe in independent booksellers Absolutely. And something Mm. Amazon and the giants will survive this pandemic. They will thrive in this pandemic. But my, you know, the local bookshops, that's another story. So anything that writers can do um, to support and readers to support uh, those incredibly important cultural lodestars um, Mm. matters to me. Um, So I do do as much as I can working with, with independent booksellers. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, and then um, again, getting back to that point about the just the reality of travel journalism, um, both from the point of view of uh, the reality of not being able to actually travel during COVID, uh, and also the issue um, that was already you know the, the giant existential issue of our time, as in the environmental crisis and ecological emergency that you mentioned that you're very, very focused on um, and that, for instance, uh, um, certainly uh, one talks a lot about sort of a Generation Z uh, and the younger millennials who are really, really hot on this. Um, I mean, again, in one of your interviews, you say, as a travel journalist, I know I'll travel again, but I'm definitely feeling much more committed to a specific point of view to travel more slowly. So just perhaps again, just unpack that a bit in terms of your ethos there. Yeah, I'm I think that what had happened, and this takes us nicely back to where our conversation began, is that mm. um travel over the last 20 years, where I've been experiencing it professionally, um, has been has turned into a huge act of consumption. And mm. that's what was emptying me out somehow. Yeah. Um the reason I loved travel. And why I fell in love with it, um, one from a sort of literally the way a landscape makes me feel. I've, it's, mm-hmm. it, I find it very uplifting to be in a, a, a very beautiful wild part of the world, but also the people that live in those places. Um, travel is an act of empathy. It's about feeling mm-hmm. the other. It's about feeling what you don't know and, um, and, and immersing yourself in that, 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 that place and time. So mm. an act of consumption has to be replaced by an act of empathy. If we as a species have going to survive, uh, for as long as this planet needs us to, or, or I've said that badly. 
an act of consumption needs to be replaced by an act of empathy for travel to have meaning and purpose moving forwards and for my children to be able to enjoy the world that, you know, I got when I was in my teens and first started to get on the road. I think there's just so much now that we have to recalibrate and that includes traveling more slowly. Um, It includes traveling more, uh, this is such a dangerous word, but more consciously. Um, um, Not because it's not about being guilty. I was interviewing, I do a a, a Instagram live series with various um, travelers and um, and one of them was Jack Harris, the climate activist. And he is, you know, half my age, but he was, and I was saying, how do I continue to do this? How do I continue to travel and bang the drum for climate change and, and the climate catastrophe? And he said, uh, stop feeling guilty. Stop feeling guilty. Uh, you've got to work. We've got to work with it. And we've got to make some really, really seismic changes, but guilt doesn't help anyone guilt doesn't help anyone so that's helped me because I thought maybe I'm never going to get on a plane again you know I've got to get on a plane to tell the stories in Chad about elephant poaching or um, go to Tajikistan in order to look at you know what 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 the Tajiks are doing who are just beginning before this um, pandemic started to get into the business of tourism which is an incredibly important economic um, uh, um, provides an incredibly important economic model for the future but yeah. do it without guilt but with consciousness so some tricky balances to 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 um find looking forwards yeah yeah well look, that's been absolutely fascinating sophie thank you so much i mean uh, one could talk about uh the book i mean endlessly because uh, so here it is on my desk right next to um the gulag archipelago uh Knitskin's epic so just to sort of finish off perhaps just the last couple of questions from the point of view of the uh the ethos that is really or the focal point that is um, uh, uh, linking a lot of these podcasts hope community and resilience let's say from the point of view of those three things where do you find your um, inspiration well i find it in i find it in what is closest to me which is family of course um and i find it in the home that i've come to reground in during this kind of tricky period of time you know i i used to sometimes get asked if my travel instinct was i was running away from something like there was some kind of dark personal history that i needed to go and deal with and i always said well i i'm i i'm i'm not running away from something i'm running towards it so while hope and comfort is something I invest huge amounts of um, energy in with my own family. Looking outwards is where I think there is continuity and some kind of redemption. You know, we have to keep looking outwards. I was very disturbed by how this period of profound restlessness that we've all been through locked in mm. created uh, it almost uh, it almost made people less tolerant of each other than it did mm. make them curious about what lay outside and that to me is 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 something i would want to resist because i'm an optimist i will always be an optimist 
Um, yeah. And I think that I, I want to keep traveling. I want to keep advocating for travel in a slightly different way in a reef, in a reef, in a recalibrated world. But we've, we've got to keep that contact and that those lines outward. Uh, we've got it because that's where optimism lies. It lies in what you don't already know. It relies in the surprises and in the people that you haven't yet met and the things mm. you haven't yet seen and the ideas you haven't yet encountered. Um, that's, mm. That to me is hope. Wow, how poetically put. Well, in that case, just ask, last question. Um, personally, I think your Instagram feed is actually fantastic, but for any listeners that aren't familiar with where they could track you down in terms of all things social media related, etc., yeah, perhaps just... Um, clarify that for us yeah i'm i'm i only use a single social media um platform because otherwise my life would not have any writing time left and that is um, <laughs> instagram um which actually it's been quite interesting through this period because i've not been able to travel i've been working with you know, poets um uh, photographers uh, journalists conservationists and i've started this new instagram live series where i talk once a week on a thursday with 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 some of these um folk and um, it's I, it's really interesting because I feel like I'm just in a room with that person, and I am just like the beneficiary of their of their ideas and their hope and resilience. Um, so it makes me feel really good um, doing those interviews. It makes me feel like the world hasn't kind of locked down and closed out um, everybody else. Um, I love it. Fantastic. Well, what can I say apart from to Sophie Roberts? writer whose work focuses on the wild places from Papua New Guinea to the Congo and whose uh, staggeringly brilliant book, The Lost Pianos of Siberia, was a Times, Sunday Times, an independent book of the year and was named a best travel book of 2020 and has recently been shortlisted for the Stanford Dolman Travel Book of 2021. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Sean. That was a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to the New Abnormal podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Please leave a rating, tell your friends, and until next time, goodbye.